This morning we're looking at Job 9. We're on uh, looking at the, the format of Job as we talked about last week. It's set up like a trial. So really big picture. Uh, in Job chapter 1, you know that uh, uh, we sort of had the curtain pulled back and we saw behind the scenes kind of what was going on in heaven or in God's court. And uh, the angels were there talking with him and uh, worshiping him. And Satan was there as well. And God pointed out Job to him. Um, and Satan basically makes an accusation. And it's a, a double-edged accusation against both God and Job. He says, does Job love God or fear God for no reason? And the, the implication there is that God, Job doesn't really love you. He only fears you and loves you and trusts you because you give him all these blessings. You've made him the richest you know, person on earth with this great family and everything else. And uh, that's the only reason he loves you. He doesn't really love you. And the accusation to uh, Job is you don't really love God. You just love his stuff. All right? So this is double-edged accusation that Satan makes. And then we see that it kind of unfolds like a trial. And last week we looked at Job's three friends basically putting Job on trial, saying, you've sinned somehow. You, you, somehow you're a sinner, and that's why you're getting judged. And, and then we went through and we looked at the three, we looked at more than three, but we looked at the big errors in their argument and why those three friends were actually wrong in their understanding of Job's suffering. And, uh, and even though they put him on trial, Job was victorious. Well, Job's trial continues, and, and part two of Job's trial is, is Job versus God. Job wants to hold God accountable for what's going on. And he's contemplating in chapter 9 this idea of actually literally going to court with God. And so this is part two of Job's trial, which he kind of brings on himself because he feels he wants to summon God, uh, issue him summons, and get him to court. And uh, so we're going to look at Job versus God in chapter 9 mainly this week. And I'm going to just read all of chapter 9. It's a long chapter, not too long. It's a typical chapter. But I think if we just read the entire chapter, we'll get a sense of where Job is at, how he's feeling, why he wants this trial with, with God, and then what he learns as he thinks through the process of what going to trial with God would actually look like. And so as I'm reading the word, just... Understand that this is where Job's mind is at. He, he wants a face-to-face confrontation with, with God, and he's considering exactly what the implications of that are. And, and maybe you've been there. In fact, probably a lot of you have been there at some point in your life where you've had to come face-to-face with God and understand the implications of what that face-to-face meeting are. And that's what Job 9 illuminates for us in a very visceral sense. Job 9, uh, 1 to 35. Then Job replied, and he's replying to Eliphaz, or to Bildad, sorry, he's replying to Bildad. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wished to dispute with him, they could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pallades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. 
So how then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it was a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who can challenge him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It's all the same. That is why I say he destroys both blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings a sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim past like boats of papyrus, the eagles swooping down on their prey. Pray. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile, I still dread my suffering, so I know that, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I washed myself with soap and hands, with cleansing powder, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him and that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it is now, as it stands with me, I cannot. That's the reading of God's word. Let's just pray. Father God, We read this to hear Job's voice, and we read this to hear your voice. We can sympathize with Job, almost all of us here today, because we've felt this way at various degrees and at various points in our life. How do we contend with you, God? You being who you are and we being who we are. And yet we know that you have given us your word, you've given us your spirit to give us an answer. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit this morning to open up our hearts, open up our eyes and our ears so that we might understand our brother Job, understand what it is that you would teach us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I imagine many of you have read or probably at least seen the movie, there's a moment when Lucy... Uh, I think the youngest child, is speaking to Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver has just mentioned uh, the lion Aslan, who plays sort of the metaphorical role or the symbolic role of Jesus in the series of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And Lucy asked Mr. Beaver about Aslan. She asked him, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. He's not safe, but he's good. And so there's a sense in which that quote summarizes the whole book of Job, right? It's what we learn about God through Job. Job wants a trial with God, but understands very clearly why such a trial with God would be so dangerous. Is God safe? He's not safe, but he's good. And that's what Job learns. So as Job considers this approaching God and going to court with him and having this trial versus God, there's a few things that Job understands. The first thing is that 
Job understands the key question of life. He understands the key question on the table with God, the question he absolutely has to have answered. In verse 2 of chapter 9, he restates the core question at the heart of the trial, and it actually comes up four times in the book of Job. Four times this question is repeated. He says, in Eliphaz states it first in Job 4.17, he says, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And then Job restates it in verse 2 of chapter 9. He says, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Job understands that this is the fundamental question of life. If it is true that there is a God, if it's true that God is a moral God, if it's true that God is a personal God, if there is a moral, personal God in the universe who will judge, then nothing is more important than this question that Job wants answered. It has to be answered. How does a mortal man stand right and innocent before a supreme, powerful, personal, moral God. If you don't have an answer to that question, then what's the point in life? It, that has to be answered first. And there's some people who like black and white circumstances. And in Job, it feels like there's lots of gray areas. But for those of you who like black and white situations in life, this is it. There either is a supreme, moral, personal God who does take an interest in us and he will punish the unjust because he is a just and good God, either that is true, or there is no God, or there's no God by that description. It's black and white. And if that God exists, then we need to know how we stand right before him. You can spend 50 years, 70 years, 90 years on this earth. If you don't have that question answered, then there's a problem in your life. It has to be answered. And Job understands this is the key question of life. How do we stand right before a just and moral and good God? If there is such a God, it's impossible for there to be any larger concern than this. Because we have to be standing right before this God or be destroyed. There's just no middle ground. There's no gray areas. If this God exists, then this has to be my highest concern. And so this is Job's non-rhetorical question, unlike his friends who mean it and say it as stop claiming to be right before God because nobody can be, right? They're saying it rhetorically. Job is not asking it rhetorically. Job really intends to plumb the depths of this question. He knows he should be standing right before God, but he also knows that he's not fully. And so if he admits that even he can't be fully righteous, then how can anyone ever be? Job wants to know. Job wants to know the answer to this question so badly it consumes his every thought. He wants this trial with God. And you'll touch on this in your life group and your homework, but just think of this as you go through Job and all the things Job says and all the things that he talks about God, you'll notice that as he's asking this question and repeatedly coming back to it to confront God with it, you realize that of all the things Job asked, he never asked God to heal him of his illness. Wouldn't that be the most obvious for all of us if we were suffering like Job? All the way through, Job never says, hey God, why don't you cure this illness? Bring my family back. Give me my stuff back. Right? That's not what Job's looking for. Job wants the answer to this question. Why do I not feel like I can stand righteous before God? He understands this is the key question. But secondly, Job knows the danger of approaching God. So he's like, okay, I know that this is the, the answer I need, and I need to get it from God, but I understand the danger. 
In the first few verses of chapter 9, we continue to see this sort of ancient trial language that's being used both in terms of arguing and wisdom and also in feats of strength or wrestling. Job knows the difficulty of going to trial in both of those areas. He says, first of all, if God does show up in court, how could I win? He's wise and he's mighty in verses 3 to 14. He makes comments like, if someone wanted to argue with God, you wouldn't win once in a thousand arguments. He's wise. Or who would set his strength against God? He can overturn mountains. He shakes the earth. He commands the sun and the stars. He built the heavens, the bear and Orion and Pallades and all the constellations in the south. God created all of these things. He literally spells out the problem of, of the two trials in verse 19. He says, if it's a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it's a matter of justice, who can challenge him? He's like, I'm not going to win the verbal argument like I'm, like I'm doing with my friends here. I can't win the verbal argument against God, and I can't wrestle him, right? I'm not going to, you know, it's not going to be trial by combat. That's not going to work. So Job realizes, I got this big question of life on my mind, but I can't get God into court. I can't face him. He's fully aware that he's not going to win a trial by wisdom or strength. He's not going to argue God into silence. He's not going to beat him up. But there are more problems that Job faces challenging God for answers. The second thing is that even if God did respond, Job is not sure that God is even really listening. Job says in verses 15 to 19, he says, If I manage to summon him, I'm not sure who issues God a summons, but if for some reason you could get some agent of the court to issue God a summons and he actually showed up, Job says, I don't trust that he's paying attention. Because what I see happening is that he crushes me. He multiplies disasters. The righteous and the wicked seem to suffer equally in this world. It doesn't even look like God is paying attention. He seems to be acting completely randomly. He seems to care nothing about the calamity of the innocent. If the things I see happening are an indication of God, then even if I summoned him, I can't believe that God would listen to me with compassion. So I don't think I can win the verbal argument. I don't think I can wrestle him. He's too powerful all that. And even if I did respond, even if he did condescend to meet me in court, I'm not even sure that he cares. I'm not sure he would even listen to me. This is where Job's at. This is where a lot of us are at sometimes in life, right? Like, what's going on in the world? Is God even paying attention? Does he, does he care? Like, even if, even if I could... Imagine that God would come into my bedroom and sit with me and and actually talk to me face to face. Would it really make a difference? That's where Job's at. And then thirdly, he says, even if God did listen, I'm going to be found guilty anyway. Like You see how Job's thought process is going. He's He's just working through in his mind if he could actually have this trial with God. He knows he can't win. He's not even sure that if God showed up and listened, he would listen. But then he says, even if he listened... I'm going to be found guilty anyway. He says in verse 20, he says, even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. What does he mean there? Job's saying, he's basically saying, if I tried to talk to God and if he was actually paying attention to me and cared, anything I say would simply incriminate me. All the defense that I would make for myself would just dig the hole even deeper. And some of you guys know what this is like, right? because your wife will say something about a situation that happened maybe last week. And then you start to defend yourself, and in so doing, you realize just a few minutes in that all you're doing is digging the hole deeper into whatever it is that you did, right? That's what Job is feeling right now. He's like, if God was here and talking to me, and I was actually defending my innocence about what I did, he says, my words would simply condemn me. I would just dig the hole deeper. Whatever I could say to God would just make things worse. 
And so he's starting to give up on this notion of ever winning a trial against God. In 9 to 31, 29 to 31, he says, Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with cleansing powder, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. So Job says, I could scrub myself metaphorically clean. Even if I was spotless, God would somehow show that I was filthy. God would put me in circumstances where I couldn't help but become so unclean, even my clothing would want to jump off of my back because I would be so filthy before this holy and righteous and pure God. And so Job is beginning to answer his own question. It's not just that God is wiser and stronger and can win at trial, whether he's right or whether he's wrong. Job is realizing about himself and starting to answer the real question here is that nobody is truly guiltless before God. No one is clean. Job admits that his own mouth would just dig him deeper. Even as he tried to profess his innocence, it wouldn't be clean. In 14.4, Job 14.4, it says, Who can bring what is pure from the impure? In 15.14, he says, What are mortals that they could be pure? Job is realizing that he falls short of the glory of a perfect God, as we hear from Paul in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. This is what Job is realizing. As as he's contemplating this idea of going to trial with God, and he's going through the circumstances in his mind, and he's, he's trying to figure out, you know, what would this trial with God look like? He's realizing that he's going to fall short, that he is not innocent before a holy God. Have you ever felt this way before? When you think of yourself standing before God, Almighty, Creator of the universe, the one who made the stars, who stretched out the heavens, the one who is pure, the one who is righteous. Have you felt that way? The reality is everyone should feel that way at least once to this degree, and we probably feel it to a lesser degree all the time. Right? It's not an easy road. But Job is really... Spelling out for us here the hard road, really, to redemption and to salvation. Because if you've never felt this way before God, then it's hard for you, just like it would be hard for Job, to know why you need God. If you actually have never felt the weight of your sin, if you've never felt the burden of how unclean we are before a righteous God, of the fact that we are not perfect that we are not clean, that we are not innocent. It's not an easy road to go down the road that Job is going down, right? This is mentally and emotionally exhausting for him to consider his standing before God. But everyone has to do it at some point in their life if they are going to see salvation. This introspection that Job has, this realization of who we are, and who we are not in the cosmos, it has to be confronted by some, at some point in our lives. Atheists reject it. They reject the very notion that they have to confront this, that there is a God that's going to hold them accountable, that they need to answer to anybody for their actions other than themselves. So atheists just reject this whole conversation. They re- reject this whole journey. Agnostics avoid it. Agnostics just say, it might be something that I have to think about, but not right now. And I probably can't understand it anyway, so I'll just go play golf. Various religions try to maintain control over it with rules and systems. So the religious side of the world says, there is a God, there's things that we have to do to be pre before him, so 
you know, we're going to do so many things so many times a day or so many things during the week or we're going to give so much money away or we're going to do this and that and if, if we follow the right rules, then we'll be okay. The atheists ignore it, the, or the atheists deny it, the agnostics avoid it, the religions try to maintain control over it. Only Christians confront it and wrestle with it all the way through to the conclusion, as ugly as it is to get there, that we cannot stand pure before a holy God. God is all-powerful. God is the judge who must be pleaded with for mercy. Our self-righteousness is not going to satisfy him. Our works and our words are not enough. In other words, we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe possible. And this is what is true of Job. He is more sinful and flawed than he ever dared believe. Even though even God himself declares him righteous legally in the world, Job knows that he cannot stand before God. And yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope, which we'll get to shortly. Job considers all these correct reasons why God will prevail, and then he realizes the most important thing. Job needs an advocate. Job needs a lawyer. He needs a defense counsel, right? He says, I can't face God. I don't trust my own strength. I don't trust my own wisdom. He's clearly more powerful and more wise. I maybe don't even trust what God is going to say either. I don't even trust God because I, I can't make sense of him in the world. So I need someone to stand between me and God, someone to make sense of God and someone to protect me and represent me who isn't me because I can't do it. I need somebody smarter than me, stronger than me, wiser than me, purer than me, more righteous than me, who can stand between me and God and who can sympathize with me, who can take my case, who understands what it is to be me and what I need from God. If you were going to court, isn't that what you'd want? If you had to go before a judge against an accuser who's far more powerful than you, you'd want an advocate. Well, Job 33 to 35 we see Job's realization of this. He says, If only there were someone to arbitrate between us. If only there were someone to lay his hand upon us both. If only there were someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot myself. Or literally, the Hebrew word can there, is literally, I don't have that righteousness myself. It's impossible for me. I'm not that righteous. I can't be that person. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hands on both of us, to take God's rod from me. Do we know? Do we see what Job is crying for? Of course we do. Right? Thousands of years before he appears, Job says, I need Jesus. I need Christ. He, he wants Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15-16 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Then let us approach God's throne of grace. Let us approach 
my paraphrase, the judge's bench with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what Job wants. He wants Hebrews 4. He wants a high priest who can sympathize with him, who's suffered, who's been tempted. Job wants Romans 8.34, where Paul says, Who then is the one who condemns us? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Right? That's what Job... Job sees it. Right? This man, 5,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, whenever it was, right? The most righteous man on earth, right? Sacrificed all the time for his family, had this beautiful family. God blessed him with houses and with flocks and stood up for him against Satan. He knows he needs an advocate. This is what he's crying out for. For the wrath of God, the rod of God to be removed from him so that he could stand fearless before God so that then he could speak, but he knows he can't do it without an advocate. He can't do it without an arbitrator. He wants an advocate to intercede who knows what it means to be in the dark. He wants an advocate who knows what it means to question the will of God, who has walked that road, who has asked God these questions. Is it possible for there be a way to do this without suffering? That's what Jesus asked. Is there some way that you can take this cup from me? Will you take it from me, God? But if not, your will, not mine. Job wants an advocate that knows what it means to be betrayed. Does Jesus know what it means to be betrayed, to be let down by his closest friends, to be accused and abandoned? Job wants that kind of an advocate who's been in his shoes, who's had his friends turn against him who's been turned on. He wants an advocate that knows what it means to seem trapped in a situation that just seems so unjust. A righteous man suffering for the unrighteous. Does Jesus understand that? Does Jesus understand what it means for us to feel like that in life when it feels like everything is against us and it shouldn't be and this is not fair? Of course Jesus knows that. Job says, would that, there, would that I had an arbiter between us. And we find ourselves at various points in our life crying out for justice, for someone to understand us. Men and women who have been violated and abused, they ask the question, does anyone understand? Is there ever going to be justice? God, what is happening? A child trapped in a household with unfair and unsympathetic parents who just can't take any more. A spouse who loses a partner and is missing their presence. The emptiness, the hollowness of it. A family trying to pick up the pieces after a child has taken their own life. Asking, how can these things happen? And all of those Christian things that happen in Christian lives have people asking, oh, that there was an arbiter between us. Who can stand between me and God and answer my questions so that I can approach God with this burden? Who has walked this road like I've walked who's not going to condemn us for feeling this way because they've felt this way? Jesus. We have this advocate. There is this advocate. Job is crying out prophetically from the past saying, I need this advocate. And there is this advocate. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus says, I know the weakness of your flesh. I know what it is to be in the valley. 
Bruised reeds, broken hearted, these the Lord does not despise, Isaiah 42 and Matthew 2 says. The bruised and the broken hearted, God does not despise. Jesus says, I've been there for you. I've been there to the death for you. He says, this is my body offered for you. This is my blood shed for you. And we're going to take communion in just a few minutes. But this is, this is what Jesus was saying to his disciples at the Passover supper, at the Last Supper. In Luke 22, it says he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. You see, the advocate that Job was looking for is the suffering Christ. The suffering of Christ was to save us. Job saw that he needed an advocate and he saw that he needed a merciful judge. An advocate with righteousness greater than his and a judge that would show mercy. And God is our merciful judge and God has provided his own son as our righteous advocate. God is going to show mercy and he shows us mercy through his son. When we wrestle with God, when we go to trial with God, he is not safe. We may not escape without consequences. But God will only wound us in such a way as to save us from the pit, Elihu is going to say in a little while. And when we wrestle or go to trial with God, always do so, we always go knowing that we have both an advocate and a redeemer in order to go to God with. Job could see dimly and speak prophetically and yet still confidently about his redeemer and advocate. But we know our redeemer personally. If Job could have this hope, certainly we can have this hope. We have seen things and been, had the mystery revealed, revealed to us that, that Job just couldn't even fully imagine. Jesus calls you to come, to eat, to drink, to remember the suffering of Christ, to get nourishment from the truth that we have an advocate. We have a sympathetic high priest. Jesus lays a hand on us and Jesus lays a hand on God, His Father, and He stands between us and God so that the rod of his wrath is removed and God may be merciful. And so I don't know where all of you are at today. We're all at different stages in this answering of this question of how does a mere mortal, how do I stand before a righteous God? Because I know my life. I know what I've done with my kids, in my marriage, to my friends, during school, that one time on that cruise, you know, on my taxes, right? I haven't even lived up to my own standards of goodness. Though I know I haven't lived up to God's standard, right? And we all have to stand before a merciful but also just God at some point. We know that we need the answer to this question Solved. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe possible. And yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Do you have that hope? Do you understand that if you are going to stand before God, every time you stand before God, you stand there with an advocate. You have that hope in Christ. Have you been through the journey that Job has been through to fully comprehend that there is no standing before God without this advocate? 
Have you wrestled with God right through to the bitter end and found the same answer Job found? You need Christ. You need Jesus. It's the only way we're going to stand before a righteous God. And we remember that at communion. We remember that it's what Christ did on the cross for us that allows us to come into the throne room of God with confidence. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for this book. But specifically, Lord, I thank you that you've preserved for us the wrestling of Job. That you've preserved for us the, the innermost thoughts of Job. That he has laid bare his own struggle with what he sees in the world and what's going on in his life. And the most important question to him was not, how do I get my health back? How do I get my marriage back? How do I get my stuff back? Satan's accusation was that Job was only interested in God's stuff. But that was not what Job cared about. Job cared about standing right before you, about a relationship with you. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would see beyond even our own suffering, that we would go down this journey, this path with Job, and see that this is not about trusting in you because you're going to fix our marriage or get our money back or give us the job we want. It's putting our hope in you because you make us pure and righteous before you. It's putting our hope in you because even though you slay us, we can hope in you. Father, this is a hard lesson. It's a hard lesson for Christians, let alone people who don't believe. And so, Father, I just pray that this week as we do the work in the handout, we are in our life groups and having these discussions, that we would do the hard work that Job does. That we would not shrink back from wrestling with you, even though you're not safe. And that we would give you glory and praise that you've given us your son as an advocate between us so that we can come fearlessly before you and know that you will hear us, know that you care, know that you have answers. Father, this is the question. Do we love you or do we love your stuff and what we want from you? That's the burning question that every Christian has to answer. Thank you for Job, for laying our hearts open through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.